Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Alfred Hitchcock holding a goose by the neck. The Rolling Stones on the cover of Rolling Stone. Or Steve Jobs' close-up portrait, fist beneath his chin. Those are among the iconic images shot by the renowned Scottish photographer Albert Watson. A solo exhibition of Watson's works is on view now at Scadfast Museum, and we'll hear all about it later in the program. First, there was some Big news when the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra announced its 2021-22 season lineup last week. We'll hear the details now from Jennifer Barlament, the executive director of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. She's with us now via Zoom. Jennifer, welcome back to City Lights. Oh, hi, Lois. It is so great to be here, and I can't tell you how excited I am to talk about this topic. Well, yeah, let's start with the biggest difference in concerts for the new season. (laughs) Well, the big difference is that in addition to an orchestra on stage, we're also going to have an audience in the hall (laughs) um, for the 2021-22 season. That is not something that for the past, uh, you know, for the first 75 years of the orchestra's history would have been unusual. But obviously, given the situation of the past year, it's big news and incredibly exciting news for all of us that we feel confident, you know, and well advised by our medical professionals who've been with us the whole time um, that safe to say we can uh, go back to having audiences by September. Now, how will you ensure safe distancing of concert goers? Well, some of that is going to evolve over the course of the summer. The thing that we have learned uh, very much from the experience of the past year is that um, so much of what we need to do is driven by what's happening in the community. And so we'll continue to stay in touch and watch everything over the course of the summer. It's highly likely we'll still be asking audience members to wear masks when they come back in the fall And it is also likely that we'll need to do some, you know, spreading out of patrons throughout the hall. Uh, But we're hoping not too much, knock on wood. And some of the things that we've done over the 
over the course of the past year include a major improvement to the HVAC system here at the Arts Center, which will essentially cleanse, you know, kill all the viruses in the air on a regular basis, which by itself is going to make a huge difference. Oh, yes. And as we have learned throughout the past several months, that may be the key to having the safest environment. Right. I mean, it's kind of fascinating science. We've had the um, great fortune of being able to work with a team from Georgia Tech who came in and tested the airflow in the hall and tested aerosols flow. Just really fascinating, the science behind um, how ionization works and how airflow helps improve the ability of people in the in the building to stay healthy. It's, it's just been really eye-opening. And I think what we'll see in the future is that, you know, not only will you not catch something really scary like COVID at the symphony, but hopefully people will not pass along colds and things like that in the future as well. So it's, it's actually pretty exciting. Unforeseen advantages. <laughs> Although I wish it, it didn't have to be at the expense of the pandemic. Conductor Robert Spano has a new title. What will be his role with the orchestra now? That is one of the biggest changes um, coming up next season as well. His 20-year tenure as music director officially concludes here in just a few weeks at the end of the 2000. 2021 season. And he originally was planning to take a year off after this, um, but we're really fortunate that he's agreed to conduct in the 2021-22 season. And in fact, he and Donald Runnicles are sharing a title called Co-Artistic Advisors, which means essentially they'll be the artistic leadership team for the ASO next year, which has been the case for you know the past 20 years. So we're very grateful for that stability and then in addition, he takes on his new title of music director at Laureate. And so that's in honor of all of the great things that he's done for the Atlanta Symphony for all of these years. One of the great achievements of Robert Spano's tenure as music director was the ASO's commitment to performing new music. Will that practice continue in the new season? Absolutely. And in fact, next year is a big year for premieres and new works for the ASO, partly simply because we went for a year without being able to premiere new works. So we we will introduce 18 new works into the orchestra's repertoire. Um, there'll be three U.S. premieres. And in addition to that, there'll be several world premieres, including ASO commissions. So it's a very exciting colorful, diverse set of works that we'll be introducing. And we're really excited about the opportunity to introduce new voices to the Atlanta audiences as well. Some of the most exciting aspects of next season um, that I think people will really enjoy is just a tremendous diversity of repertoire. So it's everything from great favorites that you've known for years and years, the Dvorak Cello Concerto and Ninth Symphony, the two Beethovens, the Elgar Enigma variations, and so many fantastic works. But also there's artists from all different parts of the globe, conductors from all parts of the globe, and just a tremendous diversity 
We wanted to really change things up. And so we'll hear, you know, new work by Florence Price, which the ASO has not performed before, and some fascinating Baroque repertoire, revisit some works by our longtime friend Alvin Singleton. So I think it's a you know really great opportunity to kind of celebrate the full breadth of what an orchestra can do in the midst of this really fantastic season. What does the new season hold for concert goers who love choral music in this city? Oh, well, this is very exciting. One of the sad things that we've lost, unfortunately, last year was uh, the opportunity to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the brilliant Atlanta Symphony Orchestra Chorus. And that was a real heartbreaker. But unfortunately, if you, know, if you read the press, Choral singing was uh, one of the most effective ways to spread viruses. And so we felt wisely upon advice that we should remain silent as far as the chorus goes for a year. But starting in the second half of next season, we've got a fantastic set of performances with the chorus, including uh, the Mozart Requiem, Durfle Requiem, and, and ending the season, in fact, with Mahler's Third Symphony, which features the women of the chorus. So it's coming back in the second half of the year. I remember reading in the earlier months of the pandemic that choral music was described as the AK-47 of super spreaders. (laughs) That is a very dramatic image, but uh, yeah, apparently, unfortunately, that was the case. And so sad for singers for people who love vocal music and how fantastic that finally we can welcome the mighty ASO chorus back to the hall. Oh, indeed. Do you know what determined Robert Spano's choice of works for the opening concert of the new season? We've been intending to perform Beethoven's Fifth Symphony It's a wonderful celebratory work. Everybody knows it. It's exciting. People are going to want to come hear it. Um, But it also this year has taken on a triumph over adversity additional meaning. If you know the work well, it begins with this dramatic da-da-da-da fate theme. And and by the end of the work, it's transformed into this sort of journey of celebration and triumph.
I think that's a really fantastic metaphor for how we've all managed to navigate the past year. And so he felt really strongly about that. And then the other aspect of that opening concert that is very special is our very, very good friend, Garrick Olson, the pianist, who has performed with the orchestra many times and just musically fits hand and glove beautifully with Robert's vision. And so it just happened to be two fifths. Beethoven's Fifth Symphony and also his Fifth Piano Concerto on the same program. combination every juncture congratulations and thank you very much for talking with us thank you lois thank you so much always for all of your great support and we look forward to seeing you at symphony hall soon atlanta symphony executive director jennifer barlament you can find more information about the ASO's upcoming season on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Albert Watson is considered one of the 20 most influential photographers of all time. Since the 1970s, he has shot over 200 covers of Vogue and 40 covers of Rolling Stone magazine. Now, the 79-year-old Scottish-born artist has his first solo exhibition in the U.S., The Light Behind the Lens, on view at the Scatfash Museum. City Lights producer Summer Evans sat down with the curator, Rafael Gomez, and Albert Watson, 
who talked about his iconic portraits. I'm kind of lucky when somebody like Scad asked me to do a show here, which is very nice and complimentary. You then have to realize that you can look back of 50 years and you can pluck anything from those 50 years that you feel would balance the show. Uh, so overall, you, you have the advantage of it not being a single project, but I could, I could show different projects. And as far as the detail is concerned, I have to say, looking back, and I'm, it's not that I so much realized that at the time, but I was pretty detail-oriented mm -hmm. as a photographer, and I was pretty much a pretty good scanner of a shot while I was taking it. You know, I was pretty good at scanning what was going on in front of me, you know. Mm -hmm. And I was also particularly good at looking at the balances in the shot between highlights, things that pulled my eye in the wrong direction. And also in looking at sometimes images, what was important in the image and how do I pull the eye towards what's important? You know, even later, people sometimes would criticize my work that it was too perfect, which is a kind of an interesting criticism and sometimes valid because I see what they, they mean. And sometimes now I look back at my very early work and uh, I'm kind of impressed by how loose it is and spontaneous it is. Mm. So as I, I got older, I became more detail-oriented. And I think some of my graphic design training, which was fairly extensive, comes into play. And that's, for some reason, the kind of detailing that you look at in graphics. I was actually going to ask a question about that. How did your graphic design background inform your photography? Well, it's written all over it. And I always say the same thing. If you look at the pictures through there, and of course, the pictures through there, it's not, a, it's not really a retrospective. It's more that we, I tried to slant the selections here with Raphael in the creation of the exhibition. I tried to slant it a little bit towards what I thought would, would work well for SCAD, you know, that would, the students would find interesting. A lot of it was, there's a lot of pages there from Italian Vogue or French Vogue and so on, magazines, Rolling Stone magazine and so on. So that's how the selections were made. It was slightly that way. But since I was trained in graphic design and film school, I was four years in art school, specializing in graphic design and, and photography as a craft subject, and then three years at film school. So when you look at the work, the work is really either kind of graphically controlled uh, or, as I say, filmatically mm. controlled. Like it, the, uh, I, I do a lot of work, which is not so evident here. There's one or two shots, which is not so evident that, uh, where film plays a big part. And sometimes the images are a combination of two things. They could be a shot from a movie, but they're, they're full of graphic design and composition. Let's talk about the collaboration between you and Raphael. How did you divide it into the sections that you have it set up? And you can even give a couple examples. As a curator, normally you you would organize things by by teams, and uh, we are very used 
then to create like sections that are very like okay now we have now in case photography like of my first approach to Albert's work was here we have the shadows or here we have the portraits and and then Albert came back with the idea no 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 we will mix everything not a, we are not putting this in boxes we we will have like here it's one piece here it's the other I thought wow that's a very rock and roll approach to creation this is very very fresh and I first I was really like wow but then it works so well because you're not just showing one thing you can show we are showing so many facets of Albert and also like what I observed by the viewers if you have it too organized you will not really stick to uh, artwork like this because it can be so different one piece to the other you see really the visitors taking the time to appreciate every single piece because there's so much dynamic tension between the pieces. It's so refreshing, this approach. And this was, was, was great. I, I learned a lot working with, with Albert. The exhibition itself, it's very dark to resemble a, a dark room. Many of uh, the pieces, they were really like a shot in film and develop in, in a dark room. This was to give this, this, this atmosphere of a, of a dark room. And the title, not the light behind the lens, like says a lot. <laughs> and one thing, I was always interested in chaos. In fact, we the the big book that we did with Tashin was called Chaos, K A O S, and I liked things that were not done in categories. To exaggerate categories, not that any curator would necessarily do this. But you say, okay, these are all my photographs of children. Okay, we put all of these together. These are all my photographs of car shots with models. Okay, we put all of the car shots together. Uh, these are my landscape pictures. Oh, all the landscapes go in this room, you know, or this wall, and so on. To me, the magic of stuff was that I had possibly a really beautiful nude but then I also had a beautiful dress. So does the nude work next? The dress, why not? There's no reason. Why don't we put all the nudes together, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so I never had a problem, and I always loved things being fragmented. And people would complain in the first book that I did, Cyclops, that there were no page numbers, so they could never find something again because it was chaotic. So even the first book I did, Cyclops, was had a chaos to it. Mm -hmm. And I loved putting Louisiana penitentiary pictures next to a fashion model shot for Vogue in Paris. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I just liked that. And, and then, of course, I had a lot of resistance from publishers when they said people won't understand that, that it's too much of a shock. But then I gave a really perfect answer. I said, every single human being on the planet has a TV with a remote. Are you saying they don't understand going from a soccer game to the six o'clock news? They don't understand that in the modern world? I mean, it's even I mean, a million times more electric now when you see people look at images on Instagram. Have you seen it, the speed of which people look at Instagram pictures? Oh, I'm guilty they, of that. Exactly. So, so don't tell me <laughs> that people are shocked because you have a landscape next to a nude, you know, or they can't handle that. Don't be ridiculous. You don't need to categorize that. Mm -hmm. 
And also, sometimes my life was like that. I might be working on landscapes for a whole week, and I take a plane to Paris and I do the next collections. How did I handle that? How did I switch from landscapes to doing studio fashion shots with Dior dresses? And then I flew to Cairo to do objects from Tutankhamun's tomb. So, I mean, how did you switch on there? Well, of course, it's all driven by an obsession and a love of photography. You know, what I enjoy about your work is just like every day is a new day and every day is different. Mm -hmm. That is similar to your photography. And I know that this exhibit is tailored towards fashion and portraits and stuff like that. But you don't like to put yourself in a box of being just a fashion photographer. Mm -hmm. How do you demonstrate your landscape photography, your still life, your movement in these photos? Well, the the world is, is full of fashion photographers, that's for sure. There's a lot of fashion photographers. Uh, In the 70s, I was definitely a fashion photographer. But then as time went on and I entered the 80s and into the 90s and the 2000s, something changed in the work. And I became a photographer who was (laughs) interested in fashion. And there's a difference. Mm And in fact, a lot of time editors would start started in the 80s and 90s complaining about my work because they, they said your fashion pictures are becoming too strong, too heavy. Now, you have to be careful with that word strong because you, you would say, well, don't we want strong pictures? Mm-hmm. You know, I would argue for a while. But I ended up knowing what they meant because a lot of times my fashion photography became more powerful, more iconic. Uh, in some cases more masculine, more, more heavy, not a, a light touch. So graphic design in the 80s crept into my pictures more. I used larger format cameras, which made the pictures more heavy mm. and more detailed and more carefully composed. And bit by bit, that idea of, of just a girl in the street walking in Park Avenue kind of getting in a taxi or, you know, going through swing doors and looking over her shoulder Mm -hmm. and a little bit paparazzi style and a young woman in New York and things like that. Those things, that type of photography that I did with great ease in the 70s, bit by bit left me. Um, And uh, I'm glad because when I did my first book in 92 and I began looking at, you know, photographs for my book, Mm -hmm. I suddenly realized that a shot of a woman on Park Avenue, New York, getting into a taxi, I couldn't really use it in my book, yet that photograph looked terrific in Vogue. But when you suddenly said, but wait a minute, this is a hardcover book with a hardcover on it, and it's meant to be important work, is that really heavy enough for the book? I mean, and I use the word heavy. Is it really strong enough for a book? And so therefore, if you look at the, for example, the entry picture of the exhibition there, uh, the girl that's standing there very simply against the wall with the black flag, Mm -hmm. that's a photograph of fashion. That is certainly not a fashion photograph. Right, it's having that twist, not just showing the garment, but that, having, that, having a little correct. artistic So twist. that's the difference. It's a, it's a funny difference. People would say, well, it's apples and oranges or whatever. and say, But that was my defining thing. that I began to drift away from just fashion pictures, very easy handheld mm-hmm. snapshots that I was very successful with and people loved. 
and you could still take today. So if I was to go and do a shot for American Vogue for the next issue, you know, for the July issue, and it was a girl getting in a cab laughing and getting into a taxi, and if I did it well, lit it well, and it was, it was well put together, I'm not saying fashion pictures are not well put together, but it was lightness. You know, and the girl, of course, looked beautiful. The hair, beautiful, beautiful makeup, good bag swinging, and so on. That that's fashion photography. If I did that shot now, which I did in the seventies, that shot. If I did it now, guess what? You could put it in a magazine today, and also, the fashion editors and the fashion editor in chief would still love that picture. Mm-hmm. Many of your photographs have been called iconic or heroic. You've shot Mick Jagger, Queen Elizabeth II, Kate Moss, Steve Jobs, which Steve Jobs, that photo really stuck out to me. When I literally think of Steve Jobs, I think of that black and white photo Mm -hmm. straight on, finger on his chin. But how would you distinguish a heroic photo versus an iconic photo? And what makes an iconic photo? Good. What a good question by you. You must do this for a living. (laughs) I think... It's the power of the image as you perceive it, the simplicity of the image. So when you look at the picture, there's no mistaking. You don't have to find something to look at in the picture. The picture comes right at you. Mm -hmm. So when the picture is iconic, it should have another quality as well as power written in stone, uh, Mount Rushmore, It should have a touch of all of that, but at the same time, it should be memorable. The trick is how do you get almost a passport picture of Steve Jobs to look like an iconic, memorable picture? So that when I showed the Polaroid, I had a four by five inch Polaroid that I did of that shot. And he said, when I finished, can I see the Polaroid? I said, sure. And he looked at it for a long time. So I was getting ready because he's notorious for hating photographers, you know. And they told me that. But when he looked at it, and I thought, and he looked up and was kind of, it's kind of ice cold, Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. And he said, that's maybe the best picture ever taken of me. Wow. So I, I, I thought by this time, because I, I was pretty efficient and quick when I photographed him, I thought he was just being rather nice, mm-hmm. you know, returning, you know, saying, well, hey, this guy was quick and he was nice and easy and so on. So he left with the Polaroid. He said, can I keep this? I said, yes. So basically three years later, I got a call from Tim Cook and they said they urgently needed that photograph. Can they have it? It's been on Steve's desk. And I said, sure. And I sent the photo. And that exact, I sent the photo. It was at the end of the day, five o'clock. And we sent the photo at maybe 5.30. And then... I was at Lincoln Center going to see uh, actually a movie at Lincoln Center. It was the movie festival. And I went there and my phone buzzed and I looked at it and then it was the picture of Steve Jobs. Mm -hmm. And it said, Steve Jobs died today, uh, Apple announced, you know. So he had died that day, but Mm -hmm. Tim Cook never said anything. He just said, I need that picture as soon as possible. Please send it immediately. And I was like, I can do it tomorrow. He said, no, I need it tonight. Tonight, And and, uh, so, in other words, maybe Steve Jobs did mean that. That was one of the best pictures. But the trick is, how do you you take a a minimalist picture and make it iconic? And it's it's a little bit harder than it seems because in its simplicity, you know, it's kind of nothing. 
but how do you turn it into something that has power, memorability, iconicness? Mm-hmm. I don't think there's such a word as that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, um, but how how do you you give it these ingredients? You know, mm-hmm. and uh, over over the years and years of shooting, uh, bit by bit, I got better at doing that. <laughs> Just, um, but it was not easy. When I think going to the Steve Jobs photo, the simple thumb on the chin, you know, sure. I think that kind of what draws you in because you, if you know about Steve Jobs and his intelligence, it's just kind of like reflective of his personality. How much do you prompt the subject, you know, when you're photographing them? Do you let them do that or do you tell them how to move? You know, when I did that picture and I've used the technique before, there is a very, very careful preparation of what the lighting would be. Mm -hmm. So you kind of look at that and say, oh, it's just a, a light, you know, but it's not just a light. It's pretty carefully thought out. You know, the exact contrast level of the light, the distance of the light, the height of the light, the measurement from the light to his nose, what's just outside the picture, you know, what's here that you don't see. How do you make sure that that image of him has dimension uh, without you realizing that it's a dimensional picture, 3D picture, you know? How do you do that? And uh, I think... A lot of that is just experience mm-hmm. and uh, preparation. You know, I say that all the time, preparation, preparation. So sometimes, uh, you know, when I did that picture at Apple of Steve Jobs, they said, well, Steve will be there at oh. 10 o'clock. And can we let you in at 9.30 to, to where are you going to take the picture? I said, if you let me in at, at 9.30 for a 10 o'clock appointment, I said, I, I wouldn't do the shooting. I said, I need two and a half hours. I need to, because half an hour would be ridiculous for preparation. You know, no, no photographer who wants to do serious photography is going to go with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to do something that has some weight to it, and it's not that you necessarily need two hours to do it. It's you do two hours just in case you need two hours. I need two hours in case I need two hours. Yeah. Um, because you, you, if you don't get that time and you have your lighting set up, and you fire off three frames and you blow the fuse. I mean, what do you think Steve Jobs <laughs> is going to hang out there and say, oh, you blew a fuse. Um, I'll come back in a few hours, maybe. So you prepare. You're mm-hmm. totally prepared. So when he walks in and uh, the PR person said, before he arrived, Steve hates photographers. I uh, said, so well, nothing I could do about that. I'm here to take his picture. Uh, but then the good thing was he's given me an hour, but I thought, how can I get on his good side? So when he arrived, I said to him, you know, uh, Mr. Jobs, he said, call me Steve. And I said, well, Steve, I have good news for you. And he said, what's that? I said, I don't need you for an hour. I can do this in half an hour. Mm. And he said, really? He said, are you sure? I said, yeah. He said, good, that's great. And he was so happy. He said, he said I'm so busy. And I said, good. I said, well, let's get you out of here, you know, at 1030. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, good, let's get started and so on. And then funnily enough, which is a piece of trivia, he, he walked over and then he saw I was using a film camera, which, of course, uh, a bellows plate camera. It looks like it's something from the 1920s or 1910. Mm-hmm. You know? So for him to look at it, he says, he said, oh, my God, he said, you're still shooting film like that. He said, what's wrong with you? And I said, well, you know, 
I said, I don't think, it was 2006, I said, I don't think digital's quite there yet. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, you know, he said, I think you're right. But then he looked at me and he pointed his finger and he said, but we will get there. You know, oh, wow. <laughs> you know he, said, he said, you know, it was almost like he was saying to me, we're coming to get you. Right. You know, right? he said, and that's what he said. Sure. That was his exact words. Wow. He said, but we will get there. You know, we're not quite there yet, but we will. And he pointed his finger. And then he went over and looked at this dinosauric plate camera. You know, it had gaffer tape holding it together or something, you know. And he's, he looked at it, he was kind of laughing, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and then he said to me, you sure know how to work it quickly, that camera. I said, yeah. And, uh, of course, the picture had perfect Steve Jobs' essence, mm-hmm. which is minimalism, the flatness of his computers, the way the computers are designed. Mm-hmm. There's there's a simplicity to everything around Apple, their store, the way mm-hmm. they do it. And so, so the picture has some of that essence of minimalism in it. It's just him. And as time goes on, and Steve Jobs through time becomes more iconic and more memorable as a kind of a god of this modern world, then uh, that picture still kind of holds up. Photographer Albert Watson and curator Rafael Gomez speaking about the new exhibition, The Light Behind the Lens, on view at Scadfash Museum. We'll be back with more of that conversation after a short break. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to producer Summer Evans' conversation with the renowned photographer Albert Watson and curator Rafael Gomez. Watson's solo exhibition, The Light Behind the Lands, is on view at the Scadfash Museum. Here, Watson tells the backstory of photographing the Rolling Stones for Rolling Stone magazine in 1989. I remember photographing all of the Rolling Stones for a cover of uh, Rolling Stone. So I photographed all of the Rolling Stones for Rolling Stone. And uh, each person arrived, and I spoke to them, what are we doing? I said, well, I'm going to do individual portraits of everybody, and then uh, I'm going to do a group shot of the Rolling Stones. And then I said to Keith, what we're going to do, I said, I'm going to do individual portraits and I'm going to do a group shot of the the Rolling Stones. I said, but I'd like to get a shot with you and Mick together. Mm -hmm. So Keith and Mick together. And Keith said, that's fine. The last person to come in, but he wasn't late, was Mick Jagger. And he said, well, what are we doing? You know, and of course I had to say the same routine. I said, we'll do individual portraits and then I'm going to do a group shot, but I'd like to get a shot of you and Keith together. And he said, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to be photographed with Keith. And of course, there was a lot of talk about how they weren't friends anymore and stuff, but they just put up with each other. So, and I said, oh, why not? And he said, because if you give Rolling Stone a shot of Keith and I, they're going to put it on the cover. And I want the Rolling Stones to be on the cover. And I said, uh, Okay, so uh, I was in the kitchen, and they were, they were all getting powder put on and stuff like that. And Keith came through. He said, are you ready? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, maybe you do me first. I said, 
I said, uh, I said, I'm a bit sad that Mick doesn't want to be photographed with you. And he said, what? <laughs> and, and, uh, and then, so he goes through to the, the, the makeup room and says, hey, Mick, what's wrong? You don't want to be photographed with me? What's the trouble here? What's the problem? Like this. And, and Mick said, well, I said, I didn't want to do it because they'll put it on the cover. He said, and then Keith said, you don't know that. They might not. They'll put the Rolling Stones on the cover. And, uh, he said, and Mick said, well, maybe. He said, all right. He said, if you want me to do it, I'll do it. You know, like that. And so, mm -hmm. okay, so that was fine. So I went through the single pictures. And then we got to the shot of the two of them together. And then I thought on that idea, well, let me do it a little bit almost back to back. A little bit, because they're not speaking sort of thing, you know. <laughs> and I said, well, do it back to back. And when I did the shot, I knew it was a good shot. Mm. I knew it was a good shot. Mm -hmm. And then we did the group shot of the Rolling Stones, you know, like a group shot, you mm -hmm. know. Uh, and then we did that, and then we were finished, because we did the individual shots. We did the double of Keith and Mick, and then we did the group. Mm -hmm. So we were finished. So I sent in all the pictures. And Jan Venner, you know, from Rolling Stone, because he was in charge back then, mm -hmm. he called him and said, God, I love that picture you did of Mick and Keith. He said, I've got that on the cover, oh. you know, and of course. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, ultimately, Mick was a bit furious. And then Mick called me and said, I told you that that was going to happen. He said, I know everything. He said, I know, I know everybody, what they do. Mm. And he said, then they'll want to write a story. And uh, he said, I didn't realize at the time that you did us kind of almost back to back. And he said, that made it worse, <laughs> you know, sort of thing. And of course, he knew. So he wasn't But, but he you wasn't shot mad. him after that, right? Oh, he, he yeah, we didn't. And then the funny thing was, the funny thing was, I shot him again uh, based on the heroes of, of rock and roll. We did an, an issue of Rolling Stone magazine where I did the heroes of rock and roll. And I did all of these mm -hmm. uh, endless pictures. And so did other photographers, too, did endless pictures for the magazine of the heroes uh, of rock and roll for this 25th anniversary issue. So I went out to LA and I, I did a shot. I set up a shot. I wanted him to do a shot where I was photographing him in a Corvette with a leopard. That was the idea, that he was like driving with, with the leopard uh -huh. in the front seat. So the leopard was the passenger. And he was the <laughs> so it was a kind of a surreal, strange image of him in a Corvette you know, at nighttime with a leopard. So we went to do it, but as I was a bit worried about, the leopard was different. Now, in modern times, you would just in Photoshop shoot the leopard, shoot Mick, and strip them together. Mm -hmm. But back then, I, it, that wasn't available. Mm -hmm. And uh, so what I did was, it was a horizontal shot, so I built a partition, plexiglass partition in a perfect line down in the middle. So it separated him from the leopard because the leopard was dangerous. I mean, it was, it was not like, like dangerous like, it, like this, but it, it was the kind of, le it, the, these cats like that, I've shot so many cats like that. A, che a cheetah is not bad, but a leopard is dangerous. So when I was building the plexiglass partition, out of the blue, I just thought on this, doing an old fashioned double exposure with a leopard. Mm -hmm. So I shot the leopard in the camera and then I, I, with a china marker on the, on the viewfinder, I drew where the leopard was on my camera. Mm -hmm. Just the eyes, the nose, and the mouth. I then rewound the film, and then with Mick, I placed, I, I moved the camera in a little bit 
and I made his eyes fit over where the leopard's eyes were, and then I shot a roll of double exposed film. So I shot the film twice. Wow. And I thought, God, that'll never work. So it was one roll of film. And I just put it in the box to be processed, and then I shot the other shot. And then remarkably, when I got back to New York, it was shot in LA, when I got back to New York, I processed the film and I thought, good grief. I said, there's four pictures that are perfect. He became a leopard, mm -hmm. you know, so it became a very famous shot. So I called Jan, I said, look, there's one shot you, it's amazing, and here's the, and then Jan called me back right away and he said, he said, look, I like the shot in the car. He said, but I love the shot is the leopard. You know, and I said, well, that's great. And in the meantime, I had sent the, the shot out, a Xerox of the shot out in the fax machine. That's how, we <laughs> used, that's how we used to do it, you know. And Mick saw the shot and said, hey, it, it looks great. And then Jan got the same message, so that was fine. But then the next morning, I had all of these calls that happened at nighttime because he was in L.A., uh -huh. so I was in New York. And Mick said, don't give that to me. Don't give that shot to Rolling Stone. It's the leopard, you know, which I never understood. I thought, why not? It's a fabulous shot. Yeah. And I thought, how can you not like that? And so on. So it turned out his, his agent called and said, Mick wants to use that on the cover of his next album. Oh. And he won't use it if it's in Rolling Stone. You know, he's not going to take a shot right. from Rolling Stone. Virtually nobody's ever going to do that. Mm -hmm. So about... 12.30, 1 o'clock, Mick called me and said, have you given that to Rolling Stone? And, said, and I said, yes. And I said, but you, why don't you just call them? They'll, they'll give it back to you and they won't use it. Mm -hmm. And he said, that's what I'm going to do. And of course, then there was a huge fight. <laughs> because Jan said, I'm not giving you that shot. Too bad. Oh, it was no. done for us. It wasn't done for you. I mean, it didn't... Uh, he said it got nasty eventually, but not in the beginning. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. and then eventually they, Mick had nothing to say because it, he knew it was, mm -hmm. it belonged to Rolling Stone, you know. But it's a funny story. Yeah, no, that's crazy. It's that's a wild. funny, st wild story, wild. you know. And then later on, much, much later, 25 years later, we never used that shot of him with the car. Mm. And we just, uh, we put it out as a, as a print edition and it sold out immediately. Mm -hmm. The one with him as a leopard sold out at the same time, mm -hmm. but the one with him in the car with the leopard sold out later, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Can you tell me what the key light challenge is? Yes, we had a challenge with our photography students based on Albert Watson's exhibition. And uh, yes, it was like a recent graduated uh, alums they came, they saw the exhibition, and they created artworks inspired in Albert's work. Mm -hmm. And Albert, you got to judge the students' works. What were you looking for when you were looking at these photographs? I've spent my life, you know, now since, let me see, 64, looking at photographs. So I, you might say I'm an old hand at looking at photographs, my own and, of course, other people's. And I always, when I look at other people's work like that, I always preface, because they were filming me with my comments, mm -hmm. and I always preface it to the students. I said, look, this photograph in front of me is your photograph. It belongs to you. It's your statement. And therefore, my comments are observations on that piece. Therefore, my observations are not necessarily criticisms, but they're observations, and the observations are based on my taste. Mm -hmm. 
and which I said during the whole thing of them filming, I, I said, I personally am not crazy about tomatoes, but, right, that doesn't mean tomatoes are bad. So therefore, as I look at these images, and I said at the beginning, I think everybody put a lot of energy into these photos, mm -hmm. and they did good work on the photos. But there were some people that I think began their project. They might have been looking at me, inspired by me, and so on, and I think that was fine. But I think there were some people who saw their goal. It's not a very good analogy, but they saw the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And I think a lot of people were still on the rainbow, and they could kind of see where they were going, but they didn't get to the pot, you know, at the end of the rainbow. And I think the people that we thought were kind of the best ones were not necessarily the best photographs, but you had to look at the people who crossed the line that got to the pot of gold. In other words, they set out to make a statement and they created an image and they arrived with a final image. Whereas there were other ones that I sometimes felt that some of the other images were more powerful, maybe even more challenging and more creative, but they hadn't finished the piece. Mm -hmm. It was a work in progress. And some it, with some of it, it was a work in progress with the way they lit it or, you know, basically had printed it and the way that they had left some highlights in it and the way that they could have groomed the picture better with elements that weren't necessary in the picture. Whereas their initial energy of what they wanted to do creatively was in the picture. In the end, sort of judge something, you have to look at a final piece and, and, and how it was composed and the intent of the final piece. Said, well, these people all crossed the line. The other people did amazing stuff, an amazing run, mm -hmm. but they, they were still kind of working on the piece. They were a little bit, a bit rough and ready, mm -hmm. you know, and in a funny way, which is not really a valid criticism, I wouldn't have given that to the group that were there, but in, in some ways, the alumni that finished looked like alumni photographers, and the ones that didn't looked like they were in their final year still finishing mm -hmm. off a piece of work. Yeah. We also recorded everything, mm -hmm. and it was literally a masterclass what we got from Albert <laughs> that we will share with the alumni, mm -hmm. and they can hear the feedback and uh, yeah, about every single piece, and uh, I think they will learn a lot uh, through the entire process. You know, you try and approach these things with, you know, which is a corny word, constructive criticism of the piece. But I think with somebody that's been looking at modern photography that's being produced in the year 2021, 2020, 2019, and is looking at everything that's being produced today. And of course, it's a little bit of a difficult time because of COVID mm -hmm. and stuff has slowed down. Uh, in that creative front, not completely, but slowed down. But I'm pretty aware, I'm an older photographer, mm -hmm. but I'm pretty aware of what's being shot last Tuesday, you know. So I, I kind of would say to maybe, the, I see, you know, you have to a little bit watch out for me because I'm pretty, I'm pretty prepped right. here. Right. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying, oh, he's a guy from the 80s, so mm -hmm. he doesn't really know what's happening today. Right. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> watch out. I'm a little bit aware of what's, what's, what's being done. And I think a lot of photography now is kind of hard. A lot of photography is hard right now because somebody does a snapshot on an iPhone, it goes out on the internet, and, uh, you know, there was, I was laughing the other day, there was Gigi Hadid's Instagram, and, you know, there's a shot of her changing her sneakers in a store, and she posts the picture of it, and she's got 65 million followers, mm-hmm. and you said, you look at something like that, you go, 65 million? Wow, you know, that's incredible. You then look at this crappy picture of her changing her sneakers, and then you see 3.8 million people have responded to that photograph. And then you begin to scroll down and you say, we've actually published 800,000 comments from that photograph. And you've got 800,000 comments. But then you read the comments. And of course, it's really amazing because the comments say, wow, fabulous, (laughs) unbelievable. What a photo somebody wrote. What yeah. a photo. And I'm looking back at the photo and say, did I miss something oh, here? Right. You know, did I miss something? And you go look back at the photo and you say, and you go, that's a, that's a terrible photograph of Gigi. You know, I've taken pictures of Gigi, yeah. which I quite like. But I mean, that's a crappy photograph. Mm-hmm. And people are saying, wow, what a picture. Amazing. Gigi, you're over the moon. Somebody mm-hmm. said, Gigi, what a beauty. So this idea of what's you know, it's very hard to, how do you judge photography? When someone says a crappy shot, it's fabulous, amazing, incredible. Mm-hmm. How do you judge things? How do things settle? It's, it's a strange world we live in now. Award-winning photographer Albert Watson and curator Rafael Gomez. Watson's exhibition, The Light Behind the Lands, is on view at the Scadfash Museum through September 5th. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear all about the music and mythocracy of Colonel Bruce Hampton, a new biography from the author Jerry Grillo. City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Our engineer is Shelley Canavy. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thanks for listening to member-supported WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.